Greetings. I'm Paul McLean. And I'm Helen McLean. And welcome to Poirot Greatest Detective. Today we'll be exploring... What's the title, Helen? The Third Floor Flat. The Third Floor Flat. Excellent. I have some background information on the one we're talking about today. So, because I've got a new book. I've managed to get a new book and it's Agatha Christie's Poirot, The Greatest Detective in the World by Mark Aldrich, which is from HarperCollins, published in 2020. This is a gold mine of trivia and fun facts to expand my Poirot knowledge. <laughs> so I'm really glad I've got that. Anyway, so the background to the third floor flat. Originally published in 1929 in Hutchinson's Adventure and Mystery Story magazine, it only came out in book form in the US uh, as part of their Three Blind Mice and Other Stories collection in 1950. But it wouldn't appear in the UK collections until 1974 in Poirot's early cases. Now, I did not know until I looked in... <laughs> Aldridge's book, that apparently Agatha Christie did propose expanding the story for further republication in The Adventure of the Christmas Pudding in 1960. It did not happen. Okay. <laughs> but that's for the whatever kind of, reason. For whatever reason. And we so, don't know what she was going to add in. No, it's no. it's a mystery about a mystery story. Okay. But as for ITV's Agatha Christie's Poirot, this one, which is halfway through the first series. Yeah, episode five. Already, mm. already on five. Originally aired on the 5th of February 1989. And it's an interesting one. Should we move on to the plot? Yeah. The plot. So we see scenes set in three flats in Whitehaven mansions, one above the other. Mrs Grant is seen moving into her third floor flat. Pat and her friend Mildred are dancing on the fourth floor. And Poirot, who lives on the fifth floor, is dealing with a bad cold. Uh, Miss Lemon is attending to him with a steam. <laughs> it's not a steamy water and a hot towel. <laughs> a steamy session with yeah. Miss Lemon? Surely not. You'll never cure your cold if you don't obey the instructions. I can't imagine a method so dignified can cure anything, Miss Lemon. Mrs Grant posts a letter under Pat's door. It appears she might be complaining about the noise and we'll see more about why that might be later on. Um, Mrs Grant receives a visitor, although we don't see who he is. His no. face is not shown. Despite Poirot's cold, he and Hastings are heading out to the theatre and they make a wager over whether Poirot will guess the murderer in the play. He makes his confident guess during the interval and they see Pat and her friends at the theatre as well. After the play, Poirot is outraged that his guess was wrong and he complains that he wasn't given all of the information during the play. Shocking! Hat returns home with her friends uh, and then realises she's misplaced her key. The men, Donovan and Jimmy, use the service list to gain access to her flat. Poirot and Hastings hear them while they're in their Poirot's kitchen. Uh, Poirot's writing a cheque to Hastings to pay him for his lost wager. Oh, the £10 bet. Uh, yeah, and they hear him. They hear the noise of the service list, so they have a look uh, down the shaft in Poirot's kitchen before heading out onto the landing and see Pat and Mildred singing on the stairs. So it's them being noisy neighbours again. Donovan and Jimmy enter the flat. The kitchen light isn't working, so they head into the living room and they quickly realise they're in the wrong flat. They've got out of the service lift on the wrong floor. Oh, dear. They're about to leave when Jimmy spots Mrs Grant's body. 
Poirot naturally gets involved. The kitchen light that Donovan said didn't work now works perfectly for Poirot. Um, and they also look in on the maid who they can hear snoring in the background, who apparently is a very heavy sleeper because she hears none of this. Jap arrives and um, while they're sitting around in Mrs Grant's flat, Jimmy gets blood on his arm from the table that's in the room and Poirot realises that the body had been moved. Heading back upstairs, Pat makes him an omelette and then Jap returns, having discovered a number of rather convenient clues. Poirot isn't buying it and goes back to the flat with Hastings, Jimmy and Donovan. He finds a bottle in the bin and gets Donovan to smell it because, of course, Poirot has a heavy cold and his sense of smell isn't working properly. Oh, no. And Donovan passes out immediately. He sends Jimmy out to get a brandy and the camera follows Jimmy at this point. And as Donovan comes round, Poirot sends Hastings upstairs with him to keep an eye on him and gives him a sort of a knowing look while he does it that he's very concerned for his health or some words to that effect. Poirot reveals to Jimmy that he'd found Pat's lost key in Donovan's pocket at this point, Donovan makes a run for it and there's a little bit of a, a chase scene and a dash to the basement. And Although Hastings looks like he might save the day by heading outside, he doesn't actually see Donovan at all. Donovan then steals Hastings' pride and joy of his car and manages to crash it into a T-van that's parked outside Whitehaven Mansions and is obviously distraught. Donovan is then arrested and it's revealed that he was married to Mrs Grant and she would not divorce him to allow him to marry Pat and he was waiting for a letter to arrive in the second post which is why he had to re-enter the flat in the way that he did. And the episode ends with Poirot paying for the damage to Hastings' car. I have decided to pay up and be content. Well, he settles the wager, wasn't that it? Yes. Oh, was that what it was? I I think it was. I think it was the... He seemed to pass him a lot of notes. Well, Poirot is not without income. (laughs) Maybe maybe it was 10 £1 notes then instead, (laughs) I don't know. £10, which is about... I love I love using the Bank of England inflation I know, calculator. I know you Even do. while we're watching the programme going, Bank of England inflation calculator, <laughs> 1936, <laughs> ten pounds. Today, five hundred and seventy pounds. That's the wager on the outcome yeah. of seeing a play called sure The would, Deadly Shroud. I'm not sure that would completely pay for the damage though. <laughs> no, no, it definitely wouldn't, because his whole crankshaft had gone, hadn't yeah, it? Yeah, it would need a whole new front end. Oh he'd, uh, Hastings and his crankshafts. Yeah. Oh dear. <laughs> I enjoyed it. I thought it was a good story. Yeah, I quite like this one. I think it's quite interesting. And they've really expanded it out from the short story. Um, the short story isn't set at Whitehaven Mansions. It's at, um, what's the one? Is it Friar? Friar Mansions, I think, is the actual place. Because, as we said at the start, the original short story was published first published in a magazine in 1929. And at that point, I think, Poirot was supposed to be living at Friar Mansions. Well... In this one, I don't know if that's the case because in this one, um, Poirot's living there under a, an assumed name yes. for some reason that isn't explained in the short story. I heard that Poirot was uh, Friar Mansions only had five floors and he was on the top floor. I, I don't know. I don't know. You read this stuff on the internet, you're not sure it's true. I, We've already found out something that isn't true. I don't think it's mentioned enough in the okay. short story. He's just staying in this apartment for some reason, not under his own I just name. like fertling around the internet, I getting know. all these bits of information. 
But as you said, some of it isn't true. Yes. Because there was the bit about saying that the play was a, in the story was an inspiration for one of Agatha Christie's plays later, but there's no play in the story. Oh. And Hastings, Miss Lemon and Jap are not in it. Well, unless the fact that it was in the TV version and that one that was in the TV version was a reference to... I don't know. It might have been the other way around, yeah. 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 I don't know. We have to delve even further into <laughs> our Poirot archaeology yeah. to know what that was. But the opening scene, I got the feeling with this particular episode, the third floor flat, that it was it was almost like Whitehaven Mansions itself mm. was the star because we see so much of it. Yes. And I obsessively... Yes, while you watching, did. <laughs> During this particular episode, I obsessively was counting the number of stories in yeah. Florin Court, which is the actual building yeah. it's based on. And it's like, well, some people say it's got nine. And some There's people ten. say it's got ten. There's ten. ten. We've been there. We've yeah. been there. We've photographed it. We've danced up and down outside it. And there are <laughs> ten stories yeah. to that. But in Poirot and Me by David Suchet, he says that 56B is on the fifth floor and so that's going to be the sixth story because in yes. the UK, the the ground bottom floor, floor the, the bottom the ground, floor the ground floor is the ground, and then first floor is quote that, yeah. is actually the second one up. Yeah, as opposed to in the US where the ground floor is the first floor. Yeah. I admit in the UK that is I can see how that can be yeah. very confusing. <laughs> well, if it's on the fifth floor, that means it's the sixth story. So it's that one, and we know it's on the Whitehaven Mansion. It's on the left hand side, mm. so we can identify exactly where. Poirot is supposed to live yeah. and because it's three flats essentially vertically over each yeah. other they are absolutely fifth fourth and third yeah so I mean I'm sorry but I, I'd love Whitehaven Mansions <laughs> if only we could do our podcast there as we have said before so that's the opening shot yeah, is yeah. Whitehaven Mansions I mean so that that's one of the stories the other thing that I found a little peculiar to fit in with some of the plot points is that Mrs Grant has literally moved in that day. You were not happy with that. No, because I can understand why later that would cause Donovan to have been almost reactionary and go, oh my God, she's moved in, she's going to speak to Pat and tell her everything. But there's a few things that don't make sense. So why would her maid have had her day off on a very busy day when her mistress has just moved in it, it, that just didn't make any sense. And why would she be getting so much post? That's just being very efficient. When well, you're moving, you have your post directed. Incredibly. Day one. Yeah. Mm. It I just know. It just seemed, there was just a few things like they, it's, it's one of those things that they do. They seem to tweak the stories, which obviously makes some narrative sense somewhere, but doesn't tie in fully with everything. So I can understand that if it if she's just moved in, that would be why Donovan would react in the way he did because it's all it's just happened, mm. but it doesn't tie in with other things. Now you've read the original story, yeah, and are the gang of four in it? Are we seeing oh, both all oh, four in, in the original? No, no, right. It's okay. just Poirot. He's just Poirot. There's, there's an Inspector Rice is the police right. officer. So there's no Jap. Nope. There's no Hastings. Nope. There's no Lemon. No. Nope. So they have been inserted yes. for various reasons, which we can cover in the trivia section, because I have been looking at Mark Aldridge's book, Poirot, which okay. is quite extensive. It's got some fascinating information in there. Fair enough. Glad you're reading it. <laughs> well, I couldn't help. Look up in index, third floor flat. Oh, I say. That's jolly interesting. Um, 
there was a few sort of nice points in this sort of with the appearance so when the murderer is shown calling on Mrs Grant even though we don't see it there's some quite sinister music mm. playing and I think you noticed that when Poirot's looking down through the the lift cage there's quite a on discovery of the body in yeah, the first case there's quite a very nice lighting yes. there's kind of gridded look across yeah. Poirot's face. Yeah. Sometimes you don't always see that the first time you're mm. watching it. But when you've watched it again and again and again, well, I, you go, oh, that's really nicely shot. Yeah, and I think that echoes nicely at the end when Donovan is put into the police van, which obviously has the bars across it. Oh, yes. Yeah. There's a few other changes between the story. So in the short story, when they first go into the flat, they don't discover the body. Oh, right. And it's only when they get back upstairs, Donovan finds the blood. They think he's cut himself mm. and they go, oh, it must have been in the flat. So they go back and discover the body that way. And again, um, Mrs. Grant hadn't just moved in. And obviously the whole bit with the theatre, that's all been slotted in. The story literally starts with the four friends returning from an evening out and it doesn't say where. So they're saying the murder mystery play, The Deadly Shroud, which um, it was an amusing... It was still an amusing scene, mm-hmm. I think, because seeing Poirot try and work out... Yeah, and he gets one of his um, mixed-up phrases as a result of that. So when Jimmy recognises him, he says to Hastings, see, I'm still a force to be calculated. Not the Monsieur Poirot. Uh, Yes, he lives in the flat above me. Uh, Gosh, I didn't know. This is an honour, sir. Thank you. You see, Hastings, I am still a force to be calculated. So not not to be reckoned with, but to be calculated. Very much so. (laughs) The other thing I wanted to talk about was the conversations that Poirot has with Jimmy. Mm. So obviously he takes, Jimmy almost takes that confidant role and he's the one that he reveals everything to um, and he has those. But the thing I found a bit strange was that he almost essentially tells him to swoop in while Pat's upset. <laughs> he's like, do you fancy her? Yeah. Well, she's vulnerable she, right yeah, now. Yeah, why don't you just go and have a chat because she's going to need someone. <laughs> Arm around the shoulder. Yeah. She looks cool. It's, all, yes. it's, it's like, a bit oh. peculiar. Jimmy. Go to Mademoiselle Patricia. She doesn't want me. She wants him. No, 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 mon ami. She needs you. Go on, go to her. I mean, Poirot is often shown in the stories of, because of his observation skills, knowing matters of the heart, and um, even though he hasn't had well that successful no, relationship. No, he's not often affected. He is, he is quite distanced in that sense. I mean, and that's an observation that David Suchet makes in his autobiography, Poirot and Me, about the TV series. And there is that kind of distance between Poirot and the kind of romantic side of things. In fact... Well, only for himself, but he notices it in other people. So he obviously sees something between Pat and Jimmy that he thinks could could develop. Yes, but for himself, he Mm. keeps himself quite detached. And there's there's a point where in the small kitchenette Mm. and the heroine of the story makes Poirot a fluffy omelette which reminds Poirot of his repressed love for a young Englishwoman in his past who once made him a fluffy omelette. Poirot could only love as a distance. Well, he makes a comment in the thing that that he he was in love with this Englishwoman but she couldn't cook, so... The love withered on the vine. I think the... I don't think she did make him an omelette, but in the short story he refers to her making 
it's lost love making him an omelette. Well, that's interesting because I noticed that in the TV part, there wasn't a particular reference to fluffy omelette, but there is in David Suchet's autobiography. And I wonder if David Suchet is melding his extensive knowledge of the stories with what actually appeared on screen. So that's the kind of background. Yeah, because it says in in here, Pat talks about making him an omelette. I can't remember why. It doesn't really say why. She's just like, I'm very, I'm, I make, does make I really omelet. make omelettes frightfully well. That is good. Once, mademoiselle, I loved a beautiful young English girl who resembled you greatly, but alas, she could not cook. Oh. <laughs> so, yeah, I don't know where the fluffy omelette bit. Well, we will have to from. talk to uh, <laughs> David Suchet and find and out quiz the inconsistency, quiz him about this book he released 13, you know. 10 plus years ago, whatever, and say, oh, no, pop them all. There's a one thing. No, um, it is interesting in how that melds mm. together. So, I mean, there's more on that in the future where the scenes where there's the denouement, where Poirot is saying, I'm going to announce, you know, I've gathered yeah. you all here. I'm going to announce who the murderer is. Mm-hmm. That kind of theatricality of Poirot in those very common scenes that have now become a trope mm. that David Suchet felt most aligned to Poirot because Mm -hmm. he could see and experience and know of Poirot's sense of Mm theatre like an actor and that's when he felt the the two of them kind of really melded together Mm -hmm. he knew exactly what Poirot was feeling and how that would be done so it's kind of interesting and that because you don't really think about Poirot's theatricality but I mean oh you do I think you do because he I is a showman he and he likes to like just go, duh, 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 I'm looking at this. Have you I'll seen ask, how he's dressed? I'll ask you this random question. Uh, you just go and ask about the post. Uh, and now I'm going to accuse you, and, but no, and actually yeah, swerve away. Yeah. And then he likes to pull the rabbit out the hat at the end yeah. and ta-da, look, I sorted it all together. He's a bit of a show off. Yeah, totally ripped off by Death in Paradise. Well, yeah. <laughs> it's just like, yeah. And Please a million don't do other that. things, I yeah. think. <laughs> I mean, it's one thing for a private detective to try and do that. It's another when you're a... Yeah. Policeman on a, a tropical island <laughs> yeah. doing the same getting away with it. Anyway, yeah. we digress. We're not here to talk about Death in Paradise. That's another podcast series. <laughs> um, but that sense of theatricality, it does come out quite well, and it's it's you can see it in this. And what I thought about the third floor flat in this case is I was quite surprised that slightly different from the normal format in that sense, is that Poirot decided to reveal what was going on to his compatriot, his confidant. So relative, well, you know, it wasn't right at the end. It was mm. kind of done some way through. And yeah. he says, I will show you what's been going mm. on and what I've done and how I acquired this and how I acquired that mm-hmm. to prove yeah. that yeah. your, quote, friend is actually the killer. Yeah. So I thought, that's unusual. That doesn't <laughs> but just swoop in and look after his fiance. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Anyway. He knows matters of the heart. He knows really what's right for other people. Of of course. <laughs> but I, you know what I felt most for? Hastings' car. Oh, oh, I know. Such a beautiful car. He just got it all done. There's that brilliant scene just after the crash and everyone's rushing round and looking at Donovan and I'll call an ambulance and is he all right? And Hastings is just, it cuts to Hastings just looking at the front of the car going, oh my God. Crankshaft, got oh, clean in two. Completely ruined. Oh no. <laughs> That front axle's just sheared right through. Oh, mon pauvre Hastings. You'll need a whole new front end. I really felt for Hastings yeah. there. Oh, dear. <laughs> but again, uh, a common theme we're re- referring back to here is the original story did not have the additional kind of family of characters yeah. in, but they had brought them in. Yeah. 
which was I, th- I think it it it's something I liked. Mm. It's it's something they've done with all the episodes, isn't it? To to draw them all together, so it's not just Poirot and a changing cast of characters. It gives you that commonality between the episodes with some more familiar faces, and I really like the the relationship between Poirot and Hastings, and yeah, you know it absolutely. shows the humanity a little bit more of of Poirot with those interactions. You're not just seeing him as a clinical detective. You're seeing him as somebody with a cold whose secretary is helping him get well and a friend who's taking him out to bonfire night, as in episode two, or to the theatre or whatever. I mean, it's well done. I mean, credit to the writer involved because these stories, uh, these short stories that the first series are based on, are quite short. Oh, absolutely. And to expand that to an yeah. hour's worth, essentially, of TV, mm-hmm. you do have to put more in, or else yeah. it's only going to be about 15 minutes long. So, Is there anything else you'd like to say? Nope. Right, OK. Should we go and see who's who in this particular yeah. episode? I recognise that chap. Right. OK. I noticed two people in particular. Mm-hmm. How many did you notice? Probably the same two. The same two, I suspect. Well, one I only realised when I looked up online who they were, but uh, one I definitely recognised. Yeah, I mean, the first one I recognised because it appeared on screen first, and that was Josie Wales. No. Sorry. Josie, <laughs> Josie, Josie Wales. Josie Wales is a character. <laughs> Who's Josie Wales? It's, uh, it's a cowboy <laughs> played by Clint Eastwood. <laughs> Sorry. Sorry. It's one for the outtakes. I might just leave that in. <laughs> sorry. I am so sorry, Josie Lawrence. J- Josie Lawrence. Born 6th of June, 1959, in Dudley, West Midlands. And Josie Lawrence, certainly in the 1980s, was known for being a comedian, essentially, yeah. or a comedy actor. I mean, I certainly know her from Whose Line Is It Anyway, which Absolutely. I think was a little bit... That started Later. like no, I think it's like started nineteen eighty eight. I Did think Whose Line Is It Anyway. I'm not sure so I was watching started. it at that age. <laughs> but she has been in loads of things. She's basically pivoted over the years to actually become a, a, an actor, and is probably known these days for things like uh, Enchanted April, which came out in ninety one, Robin Hood TV series two thousand and seven, Outside Edge, and actually Marple. That uh, a series that came out in two thousand and six. Mm. So I mean, she's just one of those. Actresses oh, in being British in everything, absolutely. TV who's, who's been on an awful lot of things. It's. Uh, I'm scrolling through the IMDb entry right now, and it goes. She was most recently seen yeah. um, in Good Omens as Angus Nutter. Oh, the Neil Gaiman story. Yeah, That's and right. Terry Pratchett. Yeah, I mean, she was in Smith and Jones TV series oh, she's as well. Been in everything. Everything. Yeah. I'm just going through all yeah, all yeah. the kind of materials. Comic strip presents again, more comedy. So lots of things, absolutely yeah. huge amounts of things. The second person I recognised, and you did as well, was J.R.R. Tolkien. I mean, <laughs> J.R.R. Hartley. J.R.R. Hartley? Just one R. Is it just one R? J.R.R. Hartley. Hartley. Not J.R.R. No. So this is a blink and you'll miss him cameo almost, I guess. So during the play, there is a vicar who has one line and he's played by the actor who played J.R. Hartley in the Yellow Pages adverts in the UK. 1983. Who was looking for a book on fly fishing. Fly fishing. And then somebody finally tracks it down in the advert and they say, oh, and your name? And he goes, my name, it's J.R. Hartley. Oh, <laughs> he's yes. He's looking for his own book. 
And that's played by Norman Dunstan, mm-hmm. who's the actor for that. Yeah. So, oh, yes, recognise that. Yeah. So that was fun. But those are the only two I really recognised yeah, in retrospect. Else, but, uh, no, excellent. We should move on to Trivial Matters, because mm-hmm. I've got a bit to cover. Here we go. A Trivial Matter. So I've been looking through some more of my books. As the podcast series goes on... You just buy more books. I slowly acquire more books to deal with Poirot in the TV series. So I've got two. I've got another one on the way Ooh. from the mid-90s for the grand price of 58 pence. Gosh. They're quite cheap now, mm. funnily enough, 30 odd years on. And you get some more of the kind of background trivia on that. And some of these actually hark back to some of the earlier episodes like I did not know that when we covered the adventure of Johnny Waverley that was apparently the first ever script written for the entire series and that was the one that was kind of passed around to say this is the kind of thing we're thinking of so it was kind of interesting to know I wish we'd known that at the time we recorded the episode (laughs) and which is strange because it isn't the best episode. <clears throat> no, but you know, it's but I thought they did make the right choice, as we said, mm. to start with the yeah. Clapham Cook, because that was very mm. good right out of the door. And while we're talking about ITV's Agatha Christie's Poirot, the series was originally titled Hercule Poirot's Casebook. Oh. And that was sufficiently far down the line that some of the early reviews actually referred to it as Hercule Poirot's Casebook. But I guess they changed that. Well, they obviously did. To uh, to what it is now. Mm-hmm. Now coming back on to Whitehaven Mansions, which we said was you know, it's, it's kind of the star of this particular episode, I think. But a lot of those shots done for this uh, episode and the others were basically recorded in forty eight hours, all in one go for years yeah. worth of things because Florin Court had basically been renovated very recently, and it was caught at that point where they actual people who owned it hadn't rented out the flats Mm -hmm. so there was nobody in it so basically the london weekend television crew had 48 hours to put everything they wanted in curtains in lights on day and night all this kind of thing basically 48 hours to record years worth of footage from the for the external for shots. The, the external shots. I presume the internals were filmed look in quite, studio. Yeah, I mean they look quite part. different in reality. Mm. They're, they're not they're not the same. Yeah, because uh, otherwise Poirot's flat yeah. would be huge. amount. <laughs> <laughs> it occupied like three yeah. normal flats, and so the fact they had that kind of particular window of time when it was empty, mm. it had been completely re-renovated in Art Deco style, so it looked like a mid nineteen thirties building, which was when Florent Court was actually built. It was an ideal for them to actually have that. So yeah, all those shots you see throughout the series, certainly the first ten years worth or whatever, were all shot in a very, very short amount of time. Because you get in there, you film them, off you go. So were there no I mean that's I guess okay for the establishing shots, but there are some scenes where they are outside the flat, like in this episode where Poirot walks down the way to the post box, for example. So I guess did they do later filming? I, I, I can't there was remember. some later filming, yeah. but that, but that was series on. So what they did for that, I'm not quite sure. Yeah. The other thing that became clear while going through uh, Mark Aldridge's book was just how involved Agatha Christie Limited were mm. basically Agatha Christie's immediate descendants. How involved they were in the production of this film and where. The like the the daughter and the the grandson were basically writing to and fro about mm-hmm. this and that because one of the things that was consistent was that 
obviously the Gang of Four were not in particular stories. And they were very reticent to have those characters brought into stories where they weren't in Mm -hmm. the literature. And so there had to be quite a bit of persuasion to bring them together. Well, there were two basic arguments. One was people like the interaction between the kind of Poirot family. Mm -hmm. And that's true. I mean, I did. Yeah, I do. That's what I said earlier about it making Poirot seem more human. And because these are disparate and discrete stories, there's nothing at all linking them together. So they acted like a glue to say, well, we're taking all these stories from different periods Mm. and times, putting them all in essentially 1936. But the Gang of Four, when they appear, basically hold things together to offer that sense of continuity where there really wasn't Mm -hmm. any. So I thought that was really, really clever. But uh, apparently Agatha Christie Limited, they they didn't want Miss Lemon in there with her sporty outfits and all this kind of... (laughs) Well, I think it turned out okay. You have to take it as a thing on its own because these are short stories and they have to turn them into hour-long TV yeah, episodes. Yeah, because they, they are quite tight, constrained plots, so they mm. do have to find a way to make them that little bit longer, which is why you get Poirot and Hastings going for breakfast in a pub and <laughs> you get them going to the theatre and all those sorts of things. The original stories really ran from about 1920 to 1975, yeah. so from, from a pure budget point of view you're not going to kind of travel through time if you can just buy all your props for 1936 Mm -hmm. so it makes a lot of sense logistically for that i wanted to look and i didn't i didn't get a chance to look properly but i wanted to see if things like the policeman's uniforms was it the same policeman who was in uh, johnny wave oh you see the same (laughs) same uh, pc number on there yeah yeah. because we've spotted the same 1427 we've spotted the same taxi hadn't we yes we have they reused the same in a newspaper yes but i don't blame them it's just interesting to spot a recurring taxi is not unreasonable i'm going to say because they might do the same (laughs) routes. i think you'll allow them that one but that's the kind of new stuff i've got on trivial stuff Mm -hmm. anyway good heavens so of course we've carried on with one Little Grey Cells reference from Poirot. Without the cost of stimulation, my little Grey Cells will starve and die. And there were sort of two interjections from Hastings. Certainly one where something was revealed and he did his good heavens. But then there was another when Poirot got his wallet out and (laughs) went to give him his money to pay him for the contribution to the car, which is why I thought it was maybe more than than just the £10 he was owed. Mm. Because he said, good heavens, thank you old boy or something and then Poirot says no problem old boy thanks old boy think nothing of it old boy well I think that shows two things one is Poirot is is very generous to his friends he's always very understanding he he keeps an eye on them and is always supportive. And two, he really is independently wealthy. Certainly by, you know, he's been in... Well, he's not... In de- he's wealthy. Well, he's, he's wealthy. He's independent. He's independent. not inherited. Well, no, he hasn't. <laughs> but he's, he's self-employed. He's kind of, you know, the money comes in from all these big cases he doesn't talk about. But he, he doesn't have any money troubles because you can see oh. how much he's spending on certain things. Yeah. And he has no problem doing that. So he's been in Britain and England for almost 20 years by the time of this particular setting. Mm-hmm. So he's established his reputation. He's, his name is recognised. Oh, yeah, people know him. Yeah. The Hercule Poirot. Yeah, even in this episode he's yeah. recognised. While he's almost suffering, like, <laughs> you know, he thinks he's on death's door with his cold. <laughs> and then he says, ah, oh, at least somebody knows me when my death's door I'm a force to, to be calculated. Yeah. <laughs> Coming back, I think, to the, the final scene on that, is when suddenly, because he's solved this case, Miss Lemon's produced this kind of 
steam, steamy, steamy, steamy water steam, with some medication yeah, to, in to it. help him. He says, Poirot never gets gone. Oh. <laughs> Poirot does not have colds, Miss Lemon. It is well known that Poirot scorns all but the gravest afflictions. And I think, interestingly, in that last scene, I think this is the first mention, or certainly the first that I've noticed, where Poirot asks for a tisane. Yes. I don't think he's asked for one up till now. My tisane, if you please. It's only episode five, but it's the first yeah, time yeah. I think he's actually asked for a tisane. Yeah. So there so we go. That's where we're at. Are we going to do a count on that as well? No. <laughs> <The> well, <laughs> I might. Tisane and a hot chocolate count. We'll just. Because normally just little grey cells get mentioned at least once per episode. Although in one of the episodes it was by Jap, and uh, last episode, and not by Poirot hmm. himself. And then there's usually one or two of Hastings interjections. The count increases. It does. We'll do a series tally at the end. <laughs> That'll be fun. <laughs> so, we may conclude. So, what are our overall feelings about the episode? I quite like this one. Um, I actually think it's a nice little story, nice tight plot. It's got all that you want from a Poirot story. Um, he obviously can tell almost straight away that it's got to be who it is and he just gathers the evidence to prove himself right he's quite good at this detective stuff yeah, it's is, almost uh, like he's been doing it a while yeah, yeah. but I, I i really like it but it's you know it's the way jap goes oh we found these clues it's clearly this person we're gonna go and find out who it is and then when para goes oh, i'd still like to have another look at the flat he's just like oh, go on then i suspect jap could be wrong yeah and you get to that point where you think why does jap even bother <laughs> Oh, we found out who's done it. Have you? <laughs> but no, I, I think it's a it's a good story. Yeah, it's it's another one up there. Yeah. I, I put it in the in the higher tier level of uh, yeah absolutely. of stories. I would and well, yeah. again, all kudos to the writers and everyone involved mm. for expanding that from the yeah, original definitely. short story into something that's eminently watchable. And I love Whitehaven Mansions. Yeah. <laughs> oh, Flooring Court. If you happen to live there and looking to move out soon, please get in touch. Well, you can, but we haven't got any money. <laughs> We're not Quick, buying it. Just... To Kickstarter. <laughs> yes. Anyway, digress. Really good story. Yeah. Uh, really, very much enjoyed that. Enjoyed that one, yeah. So I think that wraps everything up from this episode. Pretty much. Uh, so next time we'll be looking at Triangle at Rhodes, which is uh, Poirot's first trip abroad that we get to see. One of the first of his many, many holidays that oh, he will excellent. have over the coming years. Don't forget to check out greatestdetective.com for more. And until then... See you next time. Au revoir, mes amis. Au revoir. A podcast from Thin King Productions. <laughs>